So as I mentioned last week, we're in a bit of a different series. It is one called What We Hold True. And it is now a seven-week series, what is left, for us to talk about the core beliefs, the core values of Agape Church. And this will lead us right into Easter. And as I mentioned last week, we have gone through things like this in the past, but it was always bits and pieces. And we have arrived at a place where the Lord has helped us to see what He has done and what He has taught us in the last over a decade that the elders, the three elders of the church have been together and been here and serving and ministering, not always in that elder capacity, but as part of the leadership team here. I'm so thankful for that, so thankful for Sam and Kevin and the way that they lead and and so much that they do behind the scenes and prayers and effort and energy that nobody knows about at all. And I'm so glad for the unity of mind and heart that the Lord has given us. We sat down at a retreat last year to just began to try to put on paper what do we believe as a church? What do we value as a church? What should church membership look like? What should we expect of our members? What should we expect of our leaders? And this series is a product of that. So last week we started with this, the foundation of everything, the foundation of being a part of the church, the foundation of church membership, and that is our core beliefs surrounding salvation and salvation into Christ. And today we're now moving forward to talk about the essential doctrines that are what I'm going to call the beginning of our binding together as a church in fellowship And we are presenting this to you this morning in a statement of faith. A statement of faith, sometimes they're called confessions, sometimes they're called creeds. The word creed, it comes from a Latin verb, it means I believe. So a statement of faith is a series of I believe statements. And essentially a creed or a statement of faith is a collection of core beliefs that a group of believers hold as distinctives. Now, the Christian church for centuries and centuries have put together various creeds. We actually see some of them in the New Testament, even some in the Old Testament, pre the church being born out of the power of the Spirit. And But creeds outside of Scripture, like we're going to look at this morning, they are not inspired. They are not without error. They're not perfect. So we don't expect that of them. But what we are attempting to accomplish is to concisely explain the essential points of our faith together as a church. And I want to try to take a couple minutes to just explain what I mean by that. The basis of this statement of faith that we're going to look at this morning, the basis of it is something called the Nicene Creed. But it is not exactly the Nicene Creed. It is, that's the foundation of what we're presenting to you this morning. But we have adapted it as we have prayed and discussed as elders. But the Nicene Creed is one of the more famous and influential creeds in church history. Just for a show of hands... Little audience participation. How many of you have heard, at least heard the term Nicene Creed before? Okay. How many of you would say, I have some idea of what is in it? Okay. 
And it is, it is, again, one of the more famous, one of the more influential. It's probably second only to the Apostles' Creed. That's probably the one that is the most well-known. The Nicene Creed was put together by church leaders over two different what was called councils, gatherings of church leaders about 300 years or so after the resurrection of Jesus. And the primary emphasis of the Nicene Creed, and what I will say is the primary emphasis of the statement of faith that we have for agape, is a focus on the three members of the Trinity, the life and work of Jesus, the formation of His church, and the certainty of our hope in His return. One of the things I talked to you about last week, if you were here, is that one of the challenges that I felt we had as we began to talk as pastors about how do we communicate to our church and to the community what we believe, is that when it comes to the core convictions of our church, we did not want to have such a narrow view. And if you would bear with me and consider agape to be a field, because that's how I sometimes think of us, a field We are sheep of His pasture, so we are a particular field that God has put together in this community. Our desire is for that field to be watched over in prayer and beaming with good fruit and green grass that represents health and doctrine and our life together. But we don't want to put the fences around that field so narrow that we leave out many people who belong to the Lord, that love Him, and that have gifts that would build up His church. We don't want those fences to be so narrow, whether it is in style of worship, or whether it is in disagreement over secondary issues of our faith that that it's so narrow that we are leaving out people in the body who have gifts that we need and people in the body who we hope can be here that can receive the gifts that we have. But we also don't want to put those fences so wide that we lose faithfulness to orthodox beliefs in Christianity. So I think that's the challenge in putting together a statement of faith. So this particular one that we're going to share with you this morning doesn't capture everything that we value as a church. We're going to talk more about our values in the coming weeks. It doesn't capture everything we value. And I will tell you, and I will tell you again, it doesn't capture everything we will require of our leaders. What we will say that members need to agree on maybe different from what we say leaders must agree on. So for leaders, we're going to say, you need to agree with the essentials of our statement of faith, but there may also be values that we say, if you're going to be a teacher here, a pastor here, a leader here of some type of recognized group in our church, you also need to agree with these values. That way, we don't confuse the church by presenting different things. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about, just so we're clear. One of the values that you will see when we get to the six values that we have for agape, one of them is we we value the continuing work of the Holy Spirit to gift His church. We value that. We value all of the gifts of the Spirit. 
Now, are we gonna are we gonna tell somebody that if you're gonna be a member here, you have to affirm all the gifts of the Spirit, including the miraculous ones? We're not going to say that for someone to join this church. Because I believe that you could, if you chose to, be here and, and receive and enjoy fellowship in this church without having that particular conviction. But we will say of our leaders, you need to agree with that. Because we can't have some leaders teaching one thing about spiritual gifts and other leaders teaching something else about spiritual gifts, and that introduces confusion into the church. So we'll talk more about that, but I want to give you an example of what I mean. But the statement of faith that we're looking at today is the statement of faith that at some point, probably later this year, we will present to the members of this church to be included in our bylaws, and you will vote on that. But it is communicating what we believe to be the non-negotiable beliefs, the essentials that a Christian should affirm in order to be considered here for membership. We're saying, this is the minimum this is the basics of our faith, that if, you, if you're going to be a member here, we should agree on these things. And if we agree on these things, our belief is we can then walk together and learn together and grow together in the other parts of our faith that we may not yet agree on. And it also gives people that are brand new to the faith a place to begin their journey of discipleship. Because they are starting with these essentials that we're going to then try to build unity on in the church. All right, if you feel like all of that is a lecture, I'm sorry. I don't want it to be a lecture. So let me say this to you. A statement of faith is not merely a group of sentences or truths that we say you need to intellectually agree on. What is faith in the Bible? It, are, it is things that we believe that we act on. It is things that we hold to be true that we then live out in life and mission together. Hebrews 11, verse 1 and 2 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, and for by it the people of old received their commendation. And then the author of Hebrews goes on to list a bunch of the people of old, of the Old Testament, and the faith they had, and the things that they did out of their faith. When Noah was building the ark, and there was no rain and no flood, and he was being ridiculed by all the people of his day, why was he doing that? Because he believed. And his convictions led him to action. So when we look at this statement of faith this morning, and I hope when you pour over it on your own, because it's not something we're going to be able to cover every part of today, in your notes, on the right-hand side, if you're a note-taker, I want you to remember that a statement of faith is not merely a collection of truths that we agree on, Although it is that, but faith is a conviction that we, a community of believers, act upon. So when we have this statement of faith as a foundation in our church of the essentials we're going to gather around and then build unity on, we are saying this is the beginning of what we believe in. This is the beginning of what we hold true together. And we are going to commit ourselves as a community of believers, because that's what a church is. 
where God brings together a community, a gathering of believers, we're going to commit ourselves to all of the good works that flow out of these essentials that we believe in. So this morning as I step through this, I, again, I can't cover every bit of it. I hope you see how rich a theological statement can be. I hope you see, we could literally preach sermons out of this for weeks. But as I point out a few of the major parts of the statement of faith, I'm going to try to show you how these faith convictions should lead us to act. So let's start with the very beginning, the first couple of lines of the statement of faith for Agape Church. We affirm there is one God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. In your notes, the very beginning of this, we affirm there is only one God. Now, ask yourself, if you were reading this on your own, and you read those first six words, we affirm there is one God, would that have stood out to you as an astounding statement? Would that have stood out to you in something that you said, okay, let me think about then how I live that out? Or would you have just said, of course there's one God. There's only one God. There's not multiple gods. Buddha's not real. Allah's not real. If I find, a, if I find some, some person who tells me this is the God, the name of the God I serve, some remote part of the world I've never been to, and they, they have six different gods that they serve, we would say, of course, no, there's, there's only one God. Or maybe you would have had a Trinitarian thought, which we're going to talk about a little this morning, but you would have said, yes, there's only one God, although He exists in three persons. What would your thought have been, or would you have just skimmed over it? Because, of course, there's only one God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. By the way, today may be a little bit like a Bible drill. So I'm going to hop around to different places. Some of them you'll have time to turn to. Some of them you won't. And if you need a copy of God's Word, there's one on the back table that's yours. Please take that as our gift from you. I have more in my office that are needed later. Deuteronomy 6.4 is one of the sentences, the statements in the Bible, the verses that we get the idea of there is only one God. And this this verse is actually the beginning of one of the most important prayers in the Jewish religion, one that they would repeat daily and often. And the verse is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, and by the way, it just means listen, listen, ponder this, think about this, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now from this, we do build what is called theology of the Trinity. And it is right for us to apply it that way. There is one God, but as we see in the Bible, He exists in three persons. We're going to look at that this morning. But some scholars, and I tend to agree with them, would make the case that that's not exactly how the people of Israel would have received this statement in that day. The actual translation, if you were just to take it and put it straight into English, 
is Lord our God, Lord one. And depending on where you would think the is clauses, statements go, is how you might read that sentence. Does it mean the Lord is our God and the Lord is one? So God, the Father, Son, and Spirit are one? Or does it mean Lord our God is Lord one, is Lord alone, the only God? That is probably the emphasis that the people of Israel received it with. It was an exclusivity. They were in a culture that had many different gods. And so the first part of their affirmation of faith, the first part of their belief was, there is but one God, and one God alone. Why does that matter for us as a church? That our statement of faith would say, we affirm there is one God. Yes, we will apply that in a Trinitarian way. But, as a church, we are also saying, there is but one God I will serve. There is only one God that I will be devoted to. There is only one God as a people that we will give our hearts to. Church... Are we not every single day tempted to give our allegiance to other gods that don't have the names of gods of other religions? But aren't we tempted to bow down to the things of this world? Aren't we tempted to bow down to identities that we have created in this world? Aren't we tempted to bow down to the resources available to us in this world? And it is, is it not for us as a church to say the very first part of our statement of faith is we affirm there is but one God and we will give our hearts to Him. In your notes, we keep ourselves from idols. We keep ourselves from idols. It's how John ended one of his letters, 1 John chapter 5. It ends that way. Little children... Keep yourself from idols. The end. That is the devotion that we are to have as a church. That is to lead us in our teaching, in our worship, and it is how we are to help one another. To remind ourselves and to keep our hearts pure that we are only to be devoted to God. But there is, as I mentioned, a Trinitarian application of that idea that there is but one God. In your notes, we also affirm the mystery of the Trinity. The mystery of the Trinity. It is clear in the statement of faith, we affirm there is one God, the Father Almighty, and then we're going to talk about Jesus Christ, and then we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. The idea of the Trinity is a mystery, and listen, it is virtually unexplainable. It is one of the tenets of our faith that you have to come to some point where you just say, I believe it because it is clear in God's Word and in my experience with His Word that that's how it works, is how He has told us it is. 
People come up with all of these different little illustrations to try to use to explain the Trinity, and every single one of them end in a horrible, horrible crash and explosion because none of them fit. There is but one God, and He exists in three persons. They are not three separate people. They are not three separate gods. They are one God, but they exist in three persons. And every, in your notes, every person in the Godhead, every person of God belongs to all... No, wait, that is not right. Excuse me. Scratch out person. That makes no sense. Write down attribute. Attribute, sorry. Every attribute of God belongs to all three persons of the Godhead. What does that mean? We started off last year talking about the attributes of God. It's a great book by A.W. Tozer called The Knowledge of the Holy. There's one by A.W. Pink. I think it's just called Attributes of God. We covered some of them last year. What we're saying is that every attribute that you can apply to God belongs to all three persons of the Godhead. When you say the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, how God is eternal, God is powerful, God knows everything, He is everywhere, every attribute of God applies to God the Father, applies to God the Son, applies to God the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13, 14 is one of the places that you will find, only, I believe, only letter that Paul wrote where he signed off, ending to the letter, grace from all three members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So how does that inform us as a church? Because we're going to see it. We don't have it written out here. We affirm there is one God in three persons. But you're going to see as we walk through the statement of faith, it's very clear that there are three persons in that one God. So how does that help us? What does that matter to us? In your notes, we include all three in our forms of worship. You can take every attribute of God and you apply it to all three persons of the Godhead. And where it's a little complicated is this. It is right to say that when you look in the Bible... The emphasis for God the Father is normally planning and decreeing. And when you look in the Bible, the emphasis for the Son of God is normally accomplishing what the Father has decreed. And when you look in the Bible, you normally see that God the Spirit is enabling the work to be done, continuing the work of Christ, that he has accomplished. But all three members of the Godhead are still involved in every work of the Godhead. There may be certain places we see in the Bible where there are things that are emphasized for each person God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. But if you try to divide them out that way and separate them that way, you lose something. Because in every single work of God, from creation to the new birth to the church, every single work somehow involves God the Father, 
God the Son, God the Spirit. One God, three persons. So when we as a church think about how we worship, gathering together, praying together, greeting one another, singing together, listening to His Word, teaching His Word, doing mission together, seeking unity together, somehow all three persons of the Trinity will be involved in that, will be involved in our worship. That is a foundational truth of what we believe as a church. Continuing on, we affirm there is one God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and of earth, of all that is seen and unseen. So now the first member of the Trinity is mentioned. In your notes, God the Father. God the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and of earth and of all that is seen and unseen. God the Father. And just remember, we're, we're just scratching the surface here. This is not, we're covering every, everything the Bible teaches about the Father, the Son, or the Spirit. We're scratching the surface. But we do know, and we affirm together, that God is the maker and sustainer of all things. He is the maker and sustainer of all things. And we have the benefit of, we just covered Psalm 24 a few weeks ago. And if you remember, I started that sermon off and I said that God has a legal claim that He makes on all of creation and all of its people. Because Psalm 24 teaches everything, the earth and everyone in it belongs to Him. Why? Because He has created it and He has established it, which means He has kept it going. God creates, God sustains, and He provides for everything in His creation. He is the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. Was Jesus involved in creation? Yes. We learn that in Colossians. Was the Spirit of God involved in creation? Yes. Genesis, the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. God the Father Almighty is attributed as the Creator of heaven and earth and the One who owns all things. He is, in your notes, sovereign. God the Father is sovereign. In your Bibles, if you will, go to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read one verse there. He is sovereign. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. I'm going, to deal, I'm going to read the whole verse, but I'm just going to deal with the second part of it. In Him, Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him. I believe you can make the case that this is pointing us back to the Father who works all things according to the counsel of His will. The second part of that verse is an incredible theological statement, and it is one that we even were singing this morning. God the Father works all things according to the counsel of His will. He works he works out all things. Does that mean all things in the church? Does it mean all things in the earth? Does it mean all things in the heavens? 
Yes. Does it mean all things in the things, the spiritual world we can't see? Yes. God works all things. He is working in all things. He is leading all things. He is guiding all things. How does God determine what He's going to do? You and I might say, I work out my life according to the counsel of my mentors. I work out my business according to the the people who have mentored me. I work out being a pastor according to God's Word. I work out being a dad based on what I saw my dad do and the advice that he gave me. How does God determine what He's going to do? How He's going to work all things out? Who does He take counsel with? Himself. He works out all things according to the counsel of His will. God is sovereign. He is working out everything. doesn't mean that everything on earth originates from Him. Because there is evil and problems in the world that come from the fallen world and the curse of sin. But it does mean that God is sovereign over everything. And He is working out everything according to the counsel of His will. But not just that God is sovereign but we also believe God the Father is personal. So He is sovereign, and He is working out everything according to the counsel of His will, but can we trust Him in that? Can we trust that what He is doing is good and for our good? Do we trust that He can see us? And that as He is working everything out to the counsel of His will, that He's thinking about us and our lives and concern for us? Absolutely, because He is... Not only sovereign, but He is personal. Psalm 139. David says this to God, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise You, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are Your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, you, your eye saw my unformed substance. And in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. The Bible is very clear. God has created us. And He sustained us. And He has planned our days. And there's there's a whole teaching that we could do on that. But for right now, we're going to leave it at that general summary. He is sovereign and personal. He is working all things to the counsel of His will. And everything in your life, He is working out. He has written out In His book, your days. And for those who look to Him and love Him and cling to Him, Romans 8 tells us that as He is working out everything according to the counsel of His will, He is working every single thing in your life for your ultimate good. He is sovereign and personal. We affirm there is one God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen, What does that mean for us as a church? That He is sovereign and He is personal. 
In your notes, it means we should fear Him. We seek Him. We love Him. We look at this God who is sovereign. We look at this God who is personal. And we say, I fear you. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. I, I seek after you and I love you. First Peter chapter 1 says, If you call upon God as Father, then live out all your days of exile, keeping in mind that He will judge the living and the dead. As a church, when we say He is the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, we are saying as a people, we believe God is sovereign. We believe He is personal. And we will fear Him as a church. We will seek Him as a church. We will love Him as a church. We will call upon Him as Father. And and not just as a term, but when we say He is our Father, we will order our lives according to His Word, according to His plans, according to His purposes. It's a huge statement for us. Then there's God the Son. In your notes, God the Son. Let's read the second paragraph. We affirm Jesus Christ as Lord. He has a unique relationship to God the Father as His only Son, eternally begotten of the Father. The word begotten the best way for us to probably translate that is means generated of. It does not mean born of, like we are born of a father. It doesn't mean created of, as in Jesus is created. And by the way, part of the reason the Nicene Creed came together is because there were people in the day, in the church, that were beginning to teach that Jesus was a created being, lower than God the Father. A divine being, but not one with God. And so part of the emphasis of the Nicene Creed was to say, no, He is eternally generated of the Father. He is God from God. Light from light. One of the ways the early church would describe this is, you can't separate the rays of the sun from the sun. Light comes from light. You can't separate the two. Jesus is God from God. Jesus is light from light. True God from true God. He is distinct, but not separate from the Father. He is distinct as a person of the Godhead, but He is not separate from God. He is begotten, not made. Jesus is one with the Father. And through Him, here's His oneness, here's an example of it, through Him, the Father, who is the Creator of heaven and earth, through Christ, the Father made all things. We affirm that He came down from heaven, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, He became incarnate from a virgin birth and was made man. The virgin birth It's a non-negotiable part of our beliefs. Why? Because Jesus didn't have an earthly mother, an earthly father by which He would have received a sin nature. He was born incarnate of the Holy Spirit to Mary. So He was born into the world a human 
but also divine, which is a huge part of our beliefs. We affirm that for our redemption, He was crucified, He suffered, He died, He was buried, and on the third day, He rose again. After appearing to the disciples for many days, He ascended into heaven, and He is now seated at the right hand of the Father. So in your notes, God the Son, He was and is fully God in human form. He was and is fully God in human form. And I want to come back to the was and is in just a moment. John chapter 1, verse 1 and 14, John says, speaking of Jesus, the Word is eternal, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father, which means God the Father has always been a Father. God doesn't change. And God the Son was eternally generated of God. He's always been the Son. He existed eternally, God the Father and the Son. But then He became man and dwelt among us. Jesus, one of the times that He almost got Himself crucified before the crucifixion, except for the hand of God, was in John 8, when He is talking to the Pharisees. And He says to them, before Moses, before Abraham, I am. When he said that, they wanted to kill him right then and there. Why? Because they understood exactly what he was saying. I'm God. They could see him in his human form. But Jesus was also saying, I'm God. But he's in human form. Philippians chapter 2 teaches us about this. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, church, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, and that is best understood as although he had all the attributes of God, although he has existed as God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ never ceased to have equality with God, but he did put himself in a subordinate position to God the Father, and he did so that he could step into our humanity and that he could suffer as we suffer, he could receive our punishment for sins. If he was fully God on the cross and that was his only form, then he wouldn't be a suitable sacrifice for us because he would not have been able to receive the punishment of our sins. And if he was only a man on the cross, he would not have been raised from the dead. He would not have been able to receive the wrath of God and live. He was both. So what does Jesus do? He reveals God to us in your notes. John chapter 17, Jesus said this. He reveals the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son, but then the Son reveals the Father to us. Everything we know about God, every moment that you have with Him, every abiding, 
Every experience with the Father, your worship of Him, your knowledge of Him, your wisdom of Him, your understanding, all of it is being revealed by God the Son. Have you seen Him in the flesh? No. But He exists right now. He exists right now, fully God, fully man in His glorified body, and He is still revealing the Father to us. He reveals God to us and, in your notes, He mediates for us. He is our perfect mediator. 1 Timothy chapter 2 talks about Jesus as the perfect mediator between God and man. And I'm going to go back to that sentence real quick. He was and is fully God in human form. Right now, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, fully God, and in His glorified human body. When He ascended to heaven, He didn't step out of that glorified form. When He ascended to heaven, He did not step back into just being fully God. He is the God-man. Fully God, fully man, in glorified form, And that is how even right now, He is our mediator. When you approach the throne of God, when you approach the Father, you do so because Jesus mediates for you. His blood, His love mediates on your behalf even today. And finally, God the Spirit. In your notes, in our statement of faith, We affirm the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. Just pause there and say this. If Jesus Christ is not fully God, it would be idolatrous for us to worship Him. But He is fully God, so it is right for us to worship Him. And if God the Spirit is fully God... It is right for Him to also receive worship. The emphasis in the New Testament is on our worship of Jesus. But God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, because they are all God, one and not separate, they are all worthy of our worship. We affirm the church exists as both the local expression and the whole body of Christ, with Jesus as the head. We affirm baptism as the believer's personal proclamation of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. Did we just hop off of talking about the Holy Spirit and start talking about the church and baptism? And I'm going to say no, we did not. In your notes, God the Spirit. He proceeds from the Father and is sent by the Son. And I'm not going to try to preach that this morning I'm not even sure I fully understand that. I'm giving you the exact quote of John 15, 26. The Spirit of God proceeds from the Father and is sent by the Son. And He is sent to continue the work of Jesus. He is sent now in the new covenant to continue the work of Jesus. That's what Jesus told us in John chapter 16 before His crucifixion. He actually said to His disciples... It's a good thing what's going to happen. It's a good thing that I'm going to go away and you won't see me. How could that possibly be a good thing? 
How could it possibly be better for us than it was for the disciples who could see Jesus in bodily form? Why? Because the Spirit of God proceeding from the Father and sent by the Son comes now and lives in us. The Spirit of God, not just Jesus, fully God and fully man, standing in front of us, but the Spirit of God making His home in us. We are the temple of the Spirit. Jesus said, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. And all that the Father has is Mine. Therefore I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. The Spirit of God is continuing the work of Jesus. He is sent by the Son to continue the work of Jesus. When He came, in your notes, when He came in power, the church was born. When He came in power, the church was born. Now, if you're note-takers, you're all trying to figure out why I skipped over that blank under God the Son. I'm going to act like I did it on purpose. I didn't. But it all comes together right here. So I'm thankful God is sovereign. How does it inform us as a church that God the Son reveals God to us and, and mediates for us and that He was fully God in human form. We are His witnesses. We are His witnesses. What does that mean? Everything points to Jesus. Church, what we are saying as agape is that in this place, it's about Jesus. We're going to point to Him. We're going to be a witness to Him. We're going to be a witness to Him the way we treat one another. We're not going to treat one another like Christ didn't die for all of us. We're going to forgive one another and love one another and treat one another in this church as a witness to Jesus. We're not going to bring shame upon Christ because the world would look at our church and say, Jesus isn't even powerful enough to keep them loving one another. We're going to be His witness in our faith. We're going to be His witness in our singing we're going to encourage one another to sing and to enter His courts with praise and His gates with thanksgiving because it's a witness to Jesus. Not because we just want to have a lot of people singing on Sunday, but because we want to be a witness to the glory of Christ. We're going to share the gospel. We're going to figure out together how to encourage one another and share the gospel. Why? Because Jesus has died for people. And we are to be his witness. But the beauty here, the connection point, is Jesus said, this is going to happen. You're going to be my witnesses. But then he said, but wait. Don't leave yet. Wait until the Spirit comes. Wait until you are clothed with power from on high. And he was pointing to when the Spirit came and the church was born. Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost. The small group of believers gathered and like thunder and waves, the Spirit of God descended upon them. And they began 
to receive His power. And things began to happen. Speaking in tongues of unknown languages. And they dispersed into the streets and people that had gathered from all different places were hearing in their own language the testimony about Jesus. And from that moment, the church is born. And it's launched through persecution to all the ends of the earth. The Spirit of God continues the work of Jesus. He came in power and the church was born. So church, agape, what does that mean? We affirm the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. Why do we tie this together? When we say we affirm the church exists, we're not moving on. The church exists in the power of the Spirit. The church worships in the power of the Spirit. The church teaches in the power of the Spirit. What does the Spirit do? He leads the church in worship. He leads in our sacraments, like baptism. We baptize people as a proclamation of their personal faith in Christ. And we do so in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit leads us in our mission and our life together. The Spirit of God speaks. He loves. He chooses. He teaches. He guides. He convicts. He empowers. He comforts. The Spirit of God is working in the church of God. So when we say we affirm the Spirit, what we are saying in your notes is we will yield to Him. We will yield to Him. Galatians 5.16 tells us that if we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We yield to the Spirit of God rather than grieve Him. He still speaks. He is speaking. He speaks through His Word. When we get to our values, we're going to talk about the authority of the Word of God. But He also speaks through His people. He speaks through gifts. We're going to talk about the value of spiritual gifts. The Spirit of God speaks to us, and we are to yield to His voice.